Almost every time Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, is mentioned by the media, his prospects as a leading Republican candidate for the 2024 presidential race are also mentioned. They usually put it this way. He's considered a potential rival to Donald Trump. He's widely being discussed as a potential candidate and so on, even though they rarely get around to telling us who's doing the considering or the discussing. So let's take a look for a minute about what seems to be perfectly acceptable behavior for a potential Republican frontrunner for president in 2024. First of all, we have the, the WOKE Act, which stands for Stop the Wrongs to Our Kids and Employees. This act takes on corporate wokeness. Uh, your guess is as good as mine because I have no idea what the fuck that is. And it also prohibits the teaching of critical race theory in Florida public schools. By the way, as many of you already know, critical race theory is an advanced legal theory that is not taught in public schools anywhere. We also have the recent Don't Say Gay Bill, which just today was passed by the Florida State Senate. This essentially makes it um, not illegal exactly, but prohibited for Florida teachers to discuss LGBTQ issues, gender, sexual orientation, with students younger than grade four, I believe. Um, it's almost certain that DeSantis is going to pass this bill. Uh, and just recently, his press secretary, whose name I believe is Christina Peshaw, which is kind of funny, um, seemed, she recently said that uh, if you're against what she called the anti-grooming bill, you're probably a groomer or at least you don't denounce the grooming of four to eight-year-old children. Let that sink in for a second. She's saying explicitly that if you think it's wrong to prevent teachers from discussing gender and issues of sexual orientation with their students, it makes you a pedophile, or at least somebody who's very comfortable with pedophiles. Now, this is just a way of changing the subject, because the truth of the matter is the quote unquote don't say gay bill is incredibly dangerous. It puts LGBTQ plus children at great risk for bullying, self-harm and suicide. But of course, they don't care. Adam Soror said, uh, I believe back in 2019, that the cruelty is the point. Well. It also appears to be a necessary prerequisite to become a Republican presidential candidate. But that's not all. In Florida, over 71,000 Floridians have died from COVID-19. That's a lot of people, obviously. And you could say, well, you know, at the beginning, we didn't know, we weren't sure what to do. We didn't have vaccines. But the truth of the matter is, Florida had its largest spike of COVID cases and deaths six months after the vaccine became readily available. That's right. Six months after a free, effective, readily available vaccine to combat COVID-19 came into existence, Florida had its highest count of COVID cases and COVID deaths. 
Many of those people died unnecessarily because Governor DeSantis fancies himself a tough guy. He thinks that somehow wearing masks and social distancing and not wanting to get sick and die or not wanting to make your children sick or die somehow makes you a wimp. DeSantis has been getting an assist from his seemingly insane Surgeon General, a guy named Joseph Latipo, who is against mask mandates and vaccine mandates. He opposed the school closures and just a couple of days ago said that healthy children should not get the COVID vaccine, which begs the question, why hasn't his medical degree been revoked? Also, DeSantis recently bullied a bunch of school children into taking their masks off during a talk he was giving. He didn't ask them or encourage them, as the mainstream media would have you believe. He mocked and bullied them because, again, apparently, being a bully is yet another criterion for success in the Republican Party. So I wonder, is being a homophobic, white supremacist, anti-science, mass murderer what it takes to be a contender for the Republican nomination? Sorry, that was just a rhetorical question. Of course it is. Those are all apparent preconditions for running in 2024. If that's what Republican voters want, then I suppose there's nothing we can do about it. If the Republican leadership has no problem with DeSantis being the nominee, and why, why should they? I mean, they were perfectly cool with Donald, who in some ways was worse. There's nothing we can do about that either. But how many people will find DeSantis an acceptable nominee simply because the media present him without any context? As if he's already a reasonable contender for the nomination. It's a variation on the same problem we see in the way they treat Donald and his 2024 status. They weigh the possibility of whether or not he's going to run instead of giving us all of the reasons he shouldn't be allowed to. Will Donald run? Is DeSantis a contender? And that's the problem. They keep asking the wrong fucking questions. Before I introduce my guests, I just want all of you to know that starting this Thursday at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, my show is going to be live on the Politicon YouTube channel. Uh, the link will be in the show notes as well. So make sure you like and follow us again on the Politicon YouTube channel and click the bell. That way you're going to get alerted every time we have a new live show coming. Now let's get to it. Today I am... So excited to welcome my next guest, Ellie Mistal, who is the justice correspondent for The Nation magazine, um, which you, his columns are excellent and not to be missed, but also the author of the very recently published Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution, which um, we're going to talk a lot about because, not just because it's brilliantly written, but because the subject matter could not be more timely. I mean, I guess you could say that about the, t uh, the subject matter of this book at any point in this nation's history, but particularly <laughs> now. Ellie, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Mary. How are you? 
I never know how to answer that question anymore. Um, because ha- how are we, given the fact that the um, the news isn't slowing down, or I should say the horrible news isn't slowing down? No respite. Right, right. No, we're, we're, I, I, I was... Yeah, it's funny. On the I have one part of my brain that's like, oh, I'm trying to promote this book and like it's new and whatever. The other part of my brain is just like, oh yeah, but it's not as important as thermonuclear war. That's <laughs> I understand why I'm getting yeah. bumped, you know, because <laughs> yeah, or two million refugees or right, like the global humanitarian crisis. You know, like things are th- things things are always happening um, in in the the craziness of of 2022. Um, but I feel, but I, but I do, I, I try not to lose sight of the fact that, you know, as bad as things are, they're better than they were three years ago. I mean, they, like the, the whole, it hasn't exactly been like Biden boring, now I can go to sleep. But like, mm-hmm. you know, let's not forget people. At five or six o'clock on Friday, it's, it's okay to turn off the computer, right? And that was not yeah. what was happening you know, 27, circa 2017, 2018, right? Where Friday is no longer the time where, where you, you try to turn off the computer and you wake up, you have to come back on because somebody, you know, some constitutional issue has been um, ignored. Somebody's been fired. Uh, right. You know, somebody has drawn a Sharpie on a hurricane projection. Like, you know, that's not happening. And so I, I try, to, try to appreciate that. Yeah, that is true. But I also feel in some ways that things are worse, uh, than they were a year ago. Not a, yeah, I guess a year ago. Um, you know, there was this period of time where I think a lot of us, not all of us by any stretch of the imagination, but a lot of us did think that um, although things wouldn't magically get 100% better as soon as Biden got sworn in, but they would get better. And I'm not so sure that's the case. I don't know. What's your take on that? I, I don't know. I think I, my version of what you're saying is that is the complacency. Right. So like Mm -hmm. I I felt like after he was elected and especially after the insurrection, um, after the the failed coup attempt, there was a lot of energy of like, we're going to fix things. Right. Um, And that has just that the air has gone out of that balloon Um, that that is kind of completely dissipated. And while we have, I think, successfully achieved, as I was saying before, a level of normalcy, a level of of, uh, uh, sustainability, um, Mm -hmm. it is it is. Far and away, we are we are we are not fixing the core problems. And as we get into another election cycle, all of those problems are going to come back up, and I think potentially really uh, bite us in the behind because we didn't use we haven't used this opportunity to structurally fix things. Um, instead, we've used it to again get ourselves you know the weekends back, and um, again that's a good thing. But mm-hmm. you know we we haven't done the we haven't done the work and the, and and. You know, one thing one thing that you always know is that the bad guys never take a day off, right? The bad guys never mm-hmm. n- uh, n- never sleep, right? And so, like they they've been working this entire time. Um, the forces that tried to overthrow the government never stopped trying to overthrow the government. Uh, <laughs> and, and and the success is um, that they have they have reaped over the last two years. I think it's going to come back to bite us in the midterms, certainly, mm-hmm. and then potentially in in twenty twenty four. Well, I, th- I think part of the problem is that the chaos and division they soak gives us energy and it totally demoralizes and enervates the rest of us because we're actual humans who care about stuff. You know, we have empathy. And I, it's understandable that, that people were just needed a break. Um, 
However, one of the things that drives me crazy is that um, not just everyday people, but the media and even a lot of Democrats act like the Biden administration is a normal administration that followed another normal administration when nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, I mean, that I tend to, I mean, depending on the day of the week, I'm either more pissed at Democrats or more pissed at media. Um, I think right now I'm in a, I'm in a more pissed at Democrats um, phase um, because I feel like there are things that we, I feel like one of the ways the media is able to, to get away with what they do is that Democrats have not done a great job of making the sale and making the argument um, and, sh- and and keeping um, the, the things that are important top of mind, right? So, like, mm-hmm. I don't know how you go through, for instance, an entire State of the Union address without bringing up the insurrection, without bringing up that there are people in that chamber who aided and abetted the insurrection without bringing up the fact that the people who are trying to figure out what happened during the insurrection are not being cooperated with by um, by leave of the Republican Party. I don't see how you go through it. That, that would have been, it, for me, it would have been Ukraine, 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 and then a one-to-one connection between fighting the authoritarians in Eastern Europe and fighting the authoritarians in Washington, D.C., I don't know how he didn't do that, so I'm a little bit annoyed by that. Um, but, you know, you, yes. you, you have me back on in two weeks, and I'll probably be annoyed at the media, which, which know, you know, knows full well what the stakes are and doesn't seem to care. Like, I don't, I don't understand why it's so difficult for certain news organizations or, 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 or particular um, publications to have a pro-democracy focus in their coverage. And we see yes. it with Ukraine. We, we don't see a lot of, you know, both sides BS when it comes to, you know, telling the difference between a country that's trying to have dem- uh, self-determination and an aggressive foreign adversary. Suddenly, a lot of these people are pro-democracy again. But why can't they be pro-democracy at home? And, right. and, and why can't they be pro-democracy in their coverage at home? Um, but, but they're not. But they're not, and, 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 and they seem to get away with it all, uh, at all times. So like I said, yeah, a couple of weeks I'll be back to being pissed at the media. But I, I think we could be pissed at both entities all the time. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I kind of have a – although that too would be really exhausting. Um, but we can try. Uh, I, I have a policy, generally speaking, of not criticizing the Biden administration or Dems ge- simply because – the media are so biased in their coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Donald versus Biden, uh, Democrats, the Democratic Party as a whole Democrats versus the Republican Party. That's their favorite. I'm sorry. Story. That's their favorite story. Democrats in disarray. Yes, yes, Dems in disarray. Yeah, exactly. And you know, generally, what we're talking about now is that. 96% of Democrats in the Senate are united, you know, but it's still Dems in disarray. Uh, when it comes to criticizing the Democratic Party, though, you just wrote an, a great article uh, called Yes, Black Voters Feel Let Down by Biden. And the two th- major things you point to that I think we do need to keep hammering on are the failures to protect voting rights in a vociferous, vehement, passionate way and uh, the failures in, in at least even addressing the problems with police corruption and violence towards black Americans. Um, what, how do we explain that? And um, 
I mean, I think you and I can explain it, but I'm, you know, I think it's hard for people to understand that that those two failures exist in a larger context. So, so can you talk about that a little bit? So one of the let's let's start at this point since you brought up I think the the, the good and, and and decent point that you want to try to uh, not exactly ignore but hold your fire a little bit um, because the coverage in the media is generally so one sided but but so let's set, let's start here uh, for explaining why I'm not holding my fire on this particular issue right um, polls that I have seen have Biden somewhere around 67 percent support. Um, with African Americans in this country, that is an unsustainable number yeah, for a Democratic point. candidate. Right? You cannot win an election to national dog catcher with sixty-six percent of the black vote if you're a Democrat. You just can't get it done. Right? Right? Biden was at you know won the election. 88 percent of black vote. Um, now he's at sixty-six percent. So he's lost twenty percent of the black electorate, right? You got to he has to fix that or he ain't going to win again. So 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 I focus on some of these issues because I'm trying to figure out well where have you lost 20% of the black electorate? And and so that's where I come to like did you lose 20% of the black electorate because they were worried that you weren't going to fund police enough? Is that is that, is that really where, where we think the problem was? Cuz I don't think that's where the problem is. All right. right. So I focus on things like police brutality um, and the failure of the Biden administration to federally address police brutality. I focus on things like voting rights. I focus on the things that black people and black activists have been asking for because it's because I have to believe that the failure to deliver on those things is a big reason why Biden has lost 20% of the black vote. There are other things that Biden has done for, for, for African-American communities, for communities of color, that I think are good. You know, Asian-American hate crimes bill, that's, that was a good thing. Um, I think that it's unquestionable he's had the most uh, diverse cabinet in American history, including more than the first black president did, right? Um, mm-hmm. he's, he's made a, a, a diverse uh, selection of, of lower court federal judges. Um, he's nominated, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, the first black woman to the Supreme Court. He has mm-hmm. a story to tell. I just tweeted uh, 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 when we're recording this, the day that we're recording this, I tweeted that uh, the, the, the breakdown of his historic funding of historically black colleges and universities. $2.7 billion um, for these um, institutions of higher learning. He has successes. But I, I'm old enough to remember when black people spent a whole summer in the street in the middle of a pandemic, desperately demanding immediate redress of, uh, of, of police brutality and demanding justice, and Biden has done nothing. I remember, I'm old enough to remember when black people delivered the Senate to Democrats by putting two Democrats into the Senate from the state of Georgia. And what we asked for was the protection of the voting rights for those people. And Biden and the Democrats have done nothing to, to protect those voting rights. And so I feel like that's, A, where the 20% went, right? That's, that's where he lost. That's where he lost the people. And B, if he doesn't get those people back, he can't win. So I focus on right. this. Yeah, and but also because um, this isn't new. How how many more decades and centuries can can a democratic leadership say to Black Americans in particular, 
you know, we'll get you eventually. Just keep putting us in power and we'll get you eventually. But, you know, we don't want to really get into the whole critical race theory, even though it's really fucking racist, um, because we don't want to upset suburban white swing voters, which, by the way, are exist in the same numbers as unicorns. You know, we don't <laughs> want to scare people off by um, doing what needs to be done and and by by implying that that these are that the rights of Americans can be deferred. Um, they're also sending the message that it doesn't really count for for the majority of Americans, which is absurd. You know, uh, Biden's whole thing in the State of the Union was a unity message. And as you said earlier, the one thing that I think should unite almost all of us, except the seditionist, is what happened on January 6th. The one thing that should unite all of us who care about the potential for American democracy is voting rights for all people. So it's that um, failure that kind of drives us up the wall. 100%. You say it's not new. Like, it's, 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 that, it's that thing where, where again, I, I think a good way of looking at it is what do the Republicans do, right? When Republicans get in power, the first thing they do is throw red meat to their base, right? You, you, you get elected Republican, I don't care if it's president, you know, uh, uh, mayor, you know, governor, anybody in between. The first thing you do if you're a Republican, you go find some vulnerable group, usually with brown skin, to, to, to make fun of, right? You go find some, 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 somebody in the LGBTQ community um, to terrorize, to harass, right? Like, it's the first thing you do to pay off the base of your voters, Right. They, they elected you to be bigoted and misogynist and cruel. And so you go off and you find somebody to be bigoted or misogynist or cruel to as a, as a, as a good faith effort to show that those base voters got what they, got what they wanted. Where's the Democrat version? Where, where, where is the Democrats paying off their base voters, right? Because unlike cruelty, what Democratic base voters want is justice. So where's the justice? Where's the perp walk? Where's the the the, the rapacious um, capitalist criminal who's being goose who's being perp walked into the courthouse? Where's the ins- where's where's the insurrectionist funder who's being uh, tried for treason? Where's the justice? Where's the fairness? Where's that where's that outreach to the base voter that put them in office? You know, running towards the center and trying to 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 compete for gettable voters—that's a—that has to happen too. I'm not, you know, naive. I understand what an election year is all about. You always want to try to tack towards the center in an election year. That's fine. But where's that payoff to the base? Because we haven't seen it. I don't know what the I don't know what the policy is that I'm supposed to point to. As like, oh, that's that's the base voter policy, right? Because the infrastructure bill, the American Recu- Rescue Plan, the the Build Back Better stuff, so that that benefits everybody. That that that's center mass, that's center mass politics, and that's great. I'm again, I'm not I'm not disparaging that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. but that's that's not what the hardcore I show up every election people. That's not what they were out in the streets for. So, so right. where's their payoff? And and you know you don't right. you don't see it, and you generally don't see it with Democrats. That's a that's a that's an ace. You know there there are many asymmetrical wars that de- Democrats fight, and this is one of them. Democrats are always basically afraid of their base. Mm-hmm. Republicans are always embrace their base. They might be lying to their base. I mean, they might not 
Republicans don't actually help a lot of the people who are in the base right. in any real way. There's not there's rarely policy or legislation that that base wants, but there's always cultural embrace. You know, they yeah. hold that base close tightly and they're, well, you and me, we're the same. They always do that for them, make them feel superior and stuff. Um, and so I, 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 I never know where that is for the Democrats. But, you know, I always try to. I always try to fight for it, I was, you know, because there's so many people, they're all like, what would you have Biden do? No, there are things that he could do. There are things that I want him to do. This is not, you know, uh, you, you've alluded to it. Mansion and cinema or cinema and mansion or the people behind those two that we never talk about because they're taking all the heat because I'm sure that, you know, look, if, if Democrats, just be real with yourselves. If Cinema and Mansion got raptured tomorrow, Chris Coons and Diane Feinstein would rise oh, and take their place. Like we, we, we know would indeed. how that rolls, right? There's always a yeah. centrist, and there's always a Joe Lieberman somewhere, you know, in this party willing to screw everything up, right? So, but there's. Oh, did you have to say that name? Oh, sorry. <laughs> right? Got chills down my spine. Right? But there's still <laughs> things that Biden could do, and I want him to yeah. do those things. And again, the problem is in how things are positioned and the language that you, and this is, sometimes it seems like a superficial thing, but I think it it is not. Republicans co-opt Democrats' language to undermine Democrats. Democrats co-opt or parrot Republicans' language to help Republicans, like using woke to criticize members of their own party or whatever, which is absurd. But then the other thing, that extends beyond that is this assumption that the bases are somehow equal. So the Republicans cater their its base, I wish, we wish, the Democrats would cater, not just cater to, but empower its base. The difference is the Democratic base is, as you said, full of people who want health care for everybody, who want voting rights for everybody, who want cops to stop killing innocent black people I'm not, I don't understand how that's not a, you know, a centrist position. The, the Republican, and it's not, clearly, the Republican base is a bunch of white supremacist, neo-Nazi, misogynistic, anti-democratic scumbags. You know, so like the two bases aren't equal. And yet it's the Republican base that gets all of the, um, at least deference, if not necessarily power, because as you mentioned, they don't really get anything except hatred. You're, you're hitting, Mary, on one of the, the one of the most important things to me, and one of the reasons why I am a Democrat or I'm a liberal or wherever you want to label me. One of the reasons that I can be labeled as such, and it's because the things that I believe, I believe, will help all people. Right? right. We can we can argue about whether or not I'm right. We can argue about whether or not I have the best way of helping all people. But I believe and I have a credible argument to say that if we do things in the ways that I think that we should do things, if we extend health care for everybody, if we control the police, if we extend voting rights to everybody, then everybody will benefit. Republicans so rarely have an argument, have a credible argument for how their policies and the things that they want and they believe will actually help everybody. So yes, if you want to live in a Christian theocracy, then the Republicans, you know, version of events will help you. But it doesn't much help you if you're Muslim. 
Whereas right. my version of religious freedom would help both Christians and Muslims at the same time, right? So right. Republicans have a debunked economic theory that will certainly help wealthy Americans, and maybe some of it they argue somehow, even despite the facts, will trickle down to the middle class. But it's not going to help poor people. They don't even try right. to pretend that it's going to – they said they think the best thing to do about being poor is just to not be poor, right? To work harder, right? My – economic theories, we can debate whether or not they would work, but my economic theories at least have a sense of how it would help poor people and middle class people and rich people would still be like super rich and wealthy, right. and, you know, and, and not eaten by the proletariat, right? So like there's, there, there are ways to skin this cat. Um, and and uh, so again, the, a big reason why I am who I am, why I'm part of the party I am um, it, it's it's because I believe that even even at the margins, our ideas are centered around the idea of helping everybody, whereas Republican ideas are centered around the idea of helping themselves. Yeah, and uh, you know, just to add on to that, it's not just that poor people just need to work harder, but according to Rick Scott, they also have to pay more taxes, which right. is somehow going to help them stop being poor. Right. It's just, I mean, look, the, 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 the two best articles that came out of the Trump era to me were Adam Sewer's The Cruelty is the Point, which just yep. explains it, and yep. Alexandra Petri's um, I Like a Woman But Not That Woman. Like, those are, <laughs> yes, exactly. those are the two things that, like, explain yeah. late Republic America, I, I think, in the best way. And you said um, in that... Um, that the Republican Party is essentially a party that is policy-free yes. and free of any substantive ideas that actually do anything. And yeah, I think you're right. I think people like Mitch McConnell, Bill Barr, they want to turn this country into a theocratic apartheid state. And uh, if they get power again, they will. <laughs> so um, that, it, to me, is a great segue to your book because you spend much of it discussing the ways in which the Republicans talk about and defend the Constitution as being completely bullshit, for lack of a better term, and not to put too fine a point on it. So let's start here. The Constitution is trash, yes? <laughs> right? Um, I, yeah. I, I am so surprised that that line has gotten um, so much uh, uh, attention in the press, considering the very first line of my book is the Constitution is not good. And the very last line of my book is the Constitution, um, I'm here to tell you the Constitution is trash. Republicans are the one that says that it always has to stay that way. So like the literal window, the frame of the book is around the premise that the Constitution is maybe not the best thing in the world. And Republicans are coming at me on Twitter like, did you see that this guy thinks the Constitution is trash? Yeah, I wrote a whole book about it. What's up? But um, not just Republicans, it's like any white person. First of all, it's always lovely to know when somebody who's attacking your book has never read it. That's always fun. <laughs> and secondly, it's always nice to know when people haven't actually read the Constitution or are not familiar with American history because you make the case. I mean, it's it's I think I tweeted about this. It's not just compelling. It's it's convincing. It's because it's true. It's they're, obvious, they're, right? Like the it's born in it's born as trash. <laughs> you know, it's born in murder and enslavement and misogyny. So how could it not be? And and this is actually to me one of the best and clearest through lines of your book. Even 
the amendments, even the way in which it has over time, to some degree or another, been improved. No women, no black people, no minorities to, ed- to any significant degree, if at all, have been involved in that process either. Right. So like that's so right. So we, we, we start from a original document um, that was written by slavers and colonists and, you know, abolitionist white people who were nonetheless willing to make deals with slavers and colonists, right? Like, that's right. the start, right? And then we we have the Bill of Rights, which, remember, the, founder found it, fought, the founding fathers didn't even think were necessary, but they were kind of forced to politically, right? And we have this amendment process, and people always want to tell me, like, oh, but the amendment somehow saved or perfected or did whatever to the Constitution. But it's worth it to point out, I think, that the amendments themselves were written by exclusively white men, to be ratified by almost exclusively white male legislatures, right? So, like, if you remember, like, you need three-fourths of legisl- to amend the Constitution, you know, pass the House and pass the Senate and be signed by the president and then ratified by three-fourths of the state legislatures. So when you talk about the 14th Amendment, huge equal protection, due process for all, that was passed by a completely white Congress, passed by a completely white Senate, signed by a white president, ratified by three-fourths of the state legislatures who were completely white at the time. That's that's your, your your basis. And if you want to say like, oh, well, the Constitution has evolved and lived and it's really about how we interpret the Constitution, which I agree. But then I have to bring up the fact that the Supreme Court has itself is the calls itself the final arbiter on what the Constitution says, on what it actually means. I will note that that power is not in the Constitution. That is a power of the Supreme Court. Just said it had. Everybody's like, okay. Guess, the Supreme Court's great that way. Guess Guess you guys get to decide. Guess the nine unelected people get to decide, but whatever. So, but that's when it becomes important that to say that we've had 115 Supreme Court justices in American history, and 108 of them have been white men. So, like, come on, folks. Like, it's not an actually controversial point to say that a document written by, for, and exclusive and almost exclusively interpreted by and for white men is maybe not the best we can do. As a starting point, right? So then, yeah. right? Like, just, just like, I don't think that's hard. When people are just, are, are, are coming at me and just like, oh, but the Constitution, like, what, what part of the Constitution are you defending to me, right? Like, what part are you willing to, to die for? Is it the part where se- that says Wyoming has to have as much representation as 58 people in California? Is that the part that you're willing to, to, to go to the mattress for? Is it the part that says that we don't actually get to popularly elect the president? Is it the part that says that there, there are no term limits on Supreme Court justice? Like, is that the part you want? No. Most people will say, no, that's not the part they're willing to die for. They're willing to die for the concepts and the ideals of the Constitution. Free speech and limited government and, uh, and uh, voting rights and universal suffrage and these things. That's the things that we're willing to die for. And I say, great, too bad. There has not been one day in American history where all of the ideals in the Constitution have been applied equally to everybody living here. Yeah, especially when you have a bunch of Supreme Court justices who call themselves originalists, which should scare the shit out of everybody. Who wants to go back to that? Uh, (laughs) No, I I wrote a piece last year about how the the Supreme Court, and this will not be any uh, news to you, has been among the most anti-democratic institutions in this country's history. Um, and I think right now we're faced with uh, one of the worst. I mean, they're they're like dread. They're going to be, I think, um, 
when we look back, uh, among the worst up there with the Dred Scott court and the Plessy versus Ferguson court. It's it's giving generational generational control of the Supreme Court to conservatives always goes wrong. It always ends badly because what we've seen throughout American history is that when conservatives control the courts, there's nothing that you can do to stop them. There's no amendment that stops the Supreme Court from doing what it wants to do when it's controlled by conservatives. To prove that point, we had a whole civil war. I mean, we fought, bled, died, whatever, got some amendments afterwards. One of them included the 15th Amendment, which said that everybody was, sorry, all men were able to vote um, regardless of race, color, or creed. Obviously, it took another, you know, 50 years before, 60 years before women were allowed to vote because, again, only white men got to write the things, uh, got to write these amendments. The Supreme Court took that 15th Amendment, took that that ideal that all men were, were, should be able to vote, and ignored it for a hundred years. <laughs> right? It's not, they weren't going through a phase, all right? They just took that and they put it in a locker for a hundred years. Then, finally, okay, finally, we get to the, we have another kind of civil uprising, the civil rights movement, right? And they finally say, okay, 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 well, let everybody vote. And in 40 years, we go from, like, an oppressed people to the first black president, and Republicans looked at that, Republicans on the Supreme Court looked at that and be like, hmm, you know what we need to do? Take the 15th Amendment away again. And so before the first black president even got out of office, John Roberts, 2013, Shelby County v. Holder, eviscerates the Voting Rights Act, which is the act that makes the 16th Amendment, the 15th Amendment real. Just, just mm-hmm. takes it out of the knees. Um, uh, 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 and and that, that set the stage. It's the underreported part. More than the diners in Ohio, it is the evisceration of the 15th Amendment that set the stage for a narrow electoral college victory in 2016 for Donald Trump. Um, and then we have uh, 2020, where 2021, sorry, where Roberts again just takes a hatchet to the 15th Amendment by eviscerating uh, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. So even when pressed, the first thing the Republican Supreme Court de- did is to take away voting rights. And it's uh, people under have to understand this is happening. This happens this way on purpose, right? First, you take away voting rights before you take away abortion, which is what's coming this summer, right? Because right. if you take away abortion first, then people would just vote you out. So first you yeah. have to take away the voting rights, then you can take away abortion. Then you can go after all the vulnerable, vulnerable groups. And that's, what's, that's the process that's starting now. They're going after women this term. They will go after gays and lesbians next term. They will go after affirmative action and black people will term after that. Immigrants are being gone after the entire time. Like, but it has to happen in sequence. You have to take away the voting rights first. Yeah, and they're, they're doing a really good job of it. And, you know, these things happen at times when those people have the luxury of not paying close enough attention, like during Reconstruction, for example, uh, when, when the assumption is that things are getting better. Because on, the, on their face, you know, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, yes, theoretically made things better. But that's not how it ended up, because if, if that had been true, then we wouldn't have had 100 years of Jim Crow and lynching and torturing and murdering and terrorizing black people who just wanted to exercise the right to vote. And we wouldn't have a situation now where like everything is at stake because we have not just extreme partisan gerrymandering that this grotesque Supreme Court just signed off on in Alabama, which I'm sure was a test case. We have um, 
voter suppression bills in 49 states that are going, most of which I'm sure will become law. And we have voter subversion. Uh, so it's this onslaught, and you're right, I think um, it is set up in this very uh, systematic way. And it's so much of it's happening at the state level, and then when it's happening in the Supreme Court, I think people are like, oh, what are you going to do? It's the Supreme Court. Well, what can we do? Gee, is there something that can be done well, before we get to with what the we Supreme can, Court? Before we get to what we can do in the future, I just want to step back for a second because it's, an, sure. it, it's, 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 it's a really important – it's a big reason why I wrote the book, right? Because uh, one of the pushbacks I've gotten is that, well, you know, you're not going to convince a lot of conservatives with this. Man, that, that wasn't even my, my goal. My goal was to convince Democrats because it is Democrats yeah. right now who won't take the field. Yeah. Republicans are constantly har- – Republican-based voters, I do not believe, are smarter than Democratic-based voters, right? I don't think Republican-based vo- voters know more about civics than re- Democrat-based voters. But Republican-based voters understand the importance of the Supreme Court because their leaders have been telling them that for a generation, so you can find a Republican-based voter who doesn't know jack about you know civics or how a bill becomes the law or whatever, but knows that they need the Supreme Court if they want their guns, right? You can. Can I ask you a question? In having to do this because it's always mystified me too. Not just why the Democrats haven't done it, but why they they don't think it's necessary. Because if you look, the Supreme Court's everything. It's it's. It's abortion rights, it's voting rights, it's climate change, it's the death penalty, it's civil rights, it's everything. So where, why is that, why does that divide exist? I think there are two reasons for it. One is because most people think of the Supreme Court as a liberal institution because of the Warren Court. Yeah. So they, they, they in, like you said it right, like the, the, historically speaking, the Supreme Court has been one of the most conservative institutions in American life. But for like 20 years there, it was like super progressive. And it's like liberals are constantly living in the like, if we just could get back to the Warren court, everything would be fine without truly understanding the conservative reactionary power of the Supreme Court traditionally. Right. Um, so they were kind of – so the Warren court really kind of changed the eye level, I think, in an ultimately bad way in terms of Democrats truly understanding the importance of the court. That's number one. But the number two issue – and uh, I, I believe this, uh, it's harder for me to prove than the other thing, um, is that Democrats are afraid because they, under, because they understand they don't want to defend some of these values and ideals as much as the Republicans want to attack it, right? So I think, for instance, a great, a great version of that is to be found in, in the abortion debate. We, we, we can debate why Republicans are like this. But it's undeniable that there are Republicans who think that there is a baby holocaust going on and that they are on some kind of holy crusade to stop it with these Supreme Court nominees. Meanwhile, you have Democrats who for a generation thought that the best thing to say was, well, abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. What's that? What's that? It's a Holocaust. You safe, legal, and rare. What is that? How is that defending a woman's fundamental right to choose, which is really defending a woman's fundamental personhood? Where is that? And what you have is Democrats who are embarrassed to make the arguments that actually right. need to be made to defend the voting rights, right? 
And using Republican language, saying pro-life and anti-choice, uh, sorry, pro-life and pro-choice instead of pro-choice and anti-choice. Right. I'll, like little things like that really matter, I, right? Right. The, the, the Republicans call themselves pro-life. I call Republicans forced birth. Because that's yes. that's what they're actually ta- like. Let's just call let's call what they're trying to do what they're trying to do, right? You're taking a, a woman mm-hmm. who doesn't want to give birth and first forcing her to do it against her will for no compensation. I don't need the Fourteenth Amendment or the right to privacy. I need the Thirteenth Amendment to stop that. But Democrats don't want to talk about it that way. Similarly, with yeah. voting rights, as much as we can say the base of the Democratic Party is black people, the base of the Democratic Party is black people. Democrats never want to believe that. They always want to believe that really they can win the white diner in Ohio. And so making the hard defense of voting rights always a little bit like they'll do it, but it's not where their heart and passion is too often, right? So I think, you know, uh, certainly the, the, the LGBTQ issue, right? We had, again, Barack Obama. I love him. Black Jesus. Like, I love the guy. You know, when he ran for office, I think marriage is between a man and a woman. He had to evolve on that, right? Republicans ain't need to evolve Oh, or devolve about as gay rights, right? So, like the, the these the the cultural issues that the Supreme Court deals with, Republicans are fundamentally much more comfortable making the cultural war points, and far too many white male centrist Democrats are afraid of getting in the trenches and fighting the culture war, which makes them afraid of getting in the trenches and fighting for the Supreme Court. So they end up saying things like, we just want good judges without bothering to tell people what good judges do. Whereas Republicans right. are always willing to tell people what their judges are going to do. That's right. the, that's or, the or, asymmetry. We'll refuse to do. Right? <laughs> and I think the, I, I hope that you know, the younger generation will help us fight this because if there are two things that I see coming from you know, the, the millennials, uh, uh, which I won't even call, can't even call kids anymore because I'm that old, right? right? Um, or, or, or Gen Zero, it's that they care about gun regulations and they care about the environment. And if Democrats could just show those kids that the, the one-to-one connection, that you're not going to get anything done with gun regulation unless you control the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is extreme even amongst Republicans when it comes to yeah. gun regulation. That you can't get anything with guns if you don't control the Supreme Court, and you can't get right. anything with the environment if you don't control the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court will not let businesses be hampered by environmental regulations. Uh, if you don't control the Supreme Court. And if you can make yeah. the, the younger generation understand that, then you could start to develop a generation of liberally aligned single-issue voters in the Supreme Court, which is what you need to fight the battle with Republicans. Yeah, and, and I think I, I could not agree more. Uh, the problem, though, <laughs> is how do we get there and can we get there? Because right now I I feel like we all need to be single-issue voters in the sense that we all need to be voting for democracy such as it is. And I kind of, I know it's awkward, but America's never been a democracy. So it's weird. I guess the the way to put it uh, is we need to be voting for the potential (laughs) to have one someday. Um, But the Democrats seem not to understand what's at stake and that kind of blows my mind. And one of the things that I found, um, maybe demoralizing is too strong a word, but uh, that I thought was a bad sign was the um, fact that a commission was put together <laughs> to look into what's happening at the Supreme Court and should there be an ethics 
something right? you know like, should so it, we're so behind the time so like the the ultimate solution is that we need to expand the number of justices on the supreme court that n- yep. nine is not the it's not from the constitution we started with six went to seven up to ten at one point um um nine is not a sacred number um, nope. that nine, you could argue, is uh, changing the justices on the Supreme Court and the number of justices on the Supreme Court is the constitutionally preferred method of dealing with the court that's out of touch. The right. court, the Constitution specifies that they're there for life. They don't want them politically pressured. Now, that's a whole different, that's, a, that's an amendment that I would make. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the Constitution specifies that they have to be there for life. But it doesn't specify how many they have to be. Right. And so expanding the Supreme Court, um, uh, and again, I, I, I argue not, not in a tit-for-tat, let's do, you know, they stole two, let's put on four more. Like, I, go, go 20, 30 uh, people <laughs> would actually be better for democracy um, because <laughs> what it would do would keep the Supreme Court kind of as powerful as it is, but lessen yeah. the power of each individual justice. That's number one. And then number sure. two, as I've said many times, look – you can't do anything on the Supreme Court without five votes, right? But if you've ever tried to get like five people together for, you know, uh, for a night out, I mean, you'll end up in some places, right? You'll end up at Thunder Down Under if you only need to get five people, right? You'll, you'll, you'll go, right? If you need to get 15 people together, you're going to end up at Applebee's. You're going to yeah, end up at the Olive Garden. Really... You're going to end up with more yeah. moderate mainstream decisions if you expand the number of people who have to like be in favor of that uh, of that decision. So a 29-person court where you need to get 15 people to get a majority is just going to fundamentally be more American center mass mainstream than a nine-person court where you just need to get you and four of your crazy friends to go along with you, right? So like that, there there are there are reform issues here beyond the tit-for-tat Republican-Democrat politics. But if yeah. you want to go the tit-for-tat Republican-Democrat politics, you know, one of the things that people always push back for, with me when I talk about court expansion, they're like, well, what if Republicans expand it back? So? So what? How is it's that the same what? thing with the filibuster. <laughs> yeah, the, they, the Republicans might get rid of it. T- okay, fine. So let's get rid of the fucking filibuster and do something. How is that where we are now? If you expand yeah. the court, if you if you do these things, if you if you reform democracy, you end the filibuster. You expand the court. You 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 do the you protect voting rights. What you have is a situation where it's much harder for Republicans to take control of all of government again. Because the only way that Republicans win at this point is by suppressing or ignoring or finding some other ways to get around the majority of the American people. The Republicans are losing. They've lost seven of the last eight presidential elections when it comes to popular vote. They've lost – I don't know how many in a row, but they have significant – they have – they consistently lose the popular vote in the midterm elections overall. They win through gerrymandering and through minority control. It's been everyone since uh, George W. Bush's second. Is that it? So, like, yep. that's, that's a long time, right? Like, you, 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 yeah. you, if, you, if you make it so that everybody who wants to vote can vote and all of those votes are counted and all of those districts are drawn fairly, if you do that, it becomes extremely hard for Republicans to take control of all, of, all the government again. Which is why they're so desperate. Obviously, because they have. I mean, fighting so hard. They have no They're cheating so hard, but it's you know it's always weird to me. Like, look, I know I come off as like crazy liberal progressive guy, but you know that 
there's also like I'm a 43 year old man with a wife and two kids and a mortgage that lives in the suburbs, and y'all Republicans can't make an argument for me. Like that's right. Y'all, exactly. Y'all can't make a just a basic like you know self interested argument for me because you literally cannot go through an entire election cycle without keeping your racism in your mouth. Like that. That's how bad you've you've gotten. Like like the the the, yeah. the extent to which the Republicans are only playing to a white supremacist rump of this country is kind of mind-boggling. And the best way to, you know, all these never-Trump Republicans, the best way to break the Republican Party out of that is by forcing them to compete on a national stage. Because if they had to compete for everybody, they couldn't harbor these extreme positions that they have. Yeah, uh, but I, I also think they've come to the conclusion that they don't need to do that because they're just going to game the system. Exactly. They're going to keep gaming the system and gaming the system. You know, somebody once asked me, um, you know, why, why don't they seem to care that, that Trumpism, so-called, doesn't scale? I'm just like, because it, they, they don't need for it to. <laughs> they only need 33% of the vote to win a national election. What the hell do they need to change anything exactly. for? You know, I, so... Uh, I sorry, honestly thought, after Romney lost, I honestly thought what that, what that proved was that there wasn't enough of a white supremacist base left in the country to support a Republican national candidate. And boy, was I wrong. Like, boy, (laughs) boy was I, like, that that was where I made the wrong turn to Albuquerque. I I didn't think there were so many of them there. And Republicans, apparently, they always knew they had more. They just needed to go, go, go get them. You know, go go motivate them. And that's what they knew. And I didn't know. And we're living in the consequences of that. Right. We are indeed. Um, (laughs) So let's talk about something slightly less depressing. Um, Actually, something wonderful. Uh, The nomination of Kanjanji Jackson. Thank God I didn't call her Jackson Brown. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure I'm not the only person who's been having that. But Kanjanji Brown, Jackson, Jesus. She seems to me, with the exception, the only criticism I have is that she's not 40 (laughs) or 12 (laughs) would be better. Um, I can't think of a better uh, nominee. Um, And yet, (laughs) the Republicans, even the ones who've voted for her to elevate her to other positions uh, on other courts, um, will probably not vote for her this time around. Um, what, I mean, I know we can't, we can't worry about Republican hypocrisy. It kind of goes without saying at this point, but what else (laughs) needs to happen to force a conversation about substance? Like it's, it's just non-existent on the other side. And, you know, we have this spectacularly qualified woman who has more experience than four out of the nine people currently serving on the court. And she's being, her qualifications are being questioned and maligned. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not surprised. Don't get me wrong. I'm not surprised. But that doesn't mean I can't be horrified, you know? Look, Mary, I've been on both sides of this. I have been on the side of defending Supreme Court nominees. I have been on the side of attacking Supreme Court nominees. Let's talk about me on the attack, right? When I come Mm -hmm. to attack, I come with cases, I come with law review articles, I come with speeches, I come with 
substance. I come with facts about what these people have said or done, decisions these people have made, and let's go and let's talk about what they've actually done in their lives or in their careers. Um, Republicans for Brown-Jackson right now got nothing. They, they, they don't got a case. They don't got a note. They, like, what are her LSAT scores? They're, they're, they're Come coming on. at her with these, with literally asking her about her law school entrance exam because yep. the 40 years of her career, they have nothing to say about, right? Like they don't, like they, it would be interesting to me if they could pull out a case that she decided where they disagree with her opinion. Because I'm still waiting, yep. to, you know, I'll, I've read them. I'm waiting to see them re- read them. And tell me exactly yes. where they disagree, right? Even the, the things that they have said to her, uh, uh, said about her opinion so far, they've amounted to, like, she stood against the Trump administration. Y- yes. So did almost everybody <laughs> <laughs> in the legal exactly. system, right? Like, yes, he, she, she disagreed with Trump's cockamamie legal arguments, right? So, so, yeah. so that's not going to be it. Like, I've, I, I've read cases from her where she's defending cops. I've read cases from her where, 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 where she's defending uh, plaintiffs who are, who are criticizing cops, who have gone completely off the reservation. I'm waiting for Republicans to come with a case. So, when you, so, so, so I, I know they won't because that's not what they do on that side of the aisle. But, like, the, the, the lack of actual substantive disagreements with her record is really jarring to me after the last few, especially after the last few nominees, where, like, we had cases up and down on Amy Coney Barrett of, like, you know, I have a problem with what she, how she ruled here. I have a problem with how she ruled here. Brett Kavanaugh, I mean, don't even want to get into the... I'm talking with Brown Jackson about the uh, professional qualifications. I don't even need to get into her moral qualifications, which she also has that other people in the Republican Party have not, right? And, you know, Neil Gorsuch, one of the biggest things about Neil Gorsuch was his, besides his yearbook photo where he was, like, part of the fascist club as a joke, Ha, ha, ha. It's hysterical. Um, was his frozen trucker case, right? Where, where he, yep. where he, where people remember the frozen trucker case. So where's the frozen trucker case for, for Katanji Brown-Jackson? At the very least, give me that version of the frozen trucker case so we can have something that's real to talk about as opposed to these just blatantly racist attacks that they're making against her. So that's why I, I would say, you've probably heard yeah. me say this before, like, I actually do not think this confirmation battle will be all that difficult. And it'll be bad, yeah, they'll throw dirt, it. and they'll be, they'll, you know, yeah. they'll beclown themselves. But yeah. at the end of the day, I think she's getting confirmed. I don't even think it's going to be that hard. Yeah, I don't think they're going to lay a glove on her. And I, I do think it will be bipartisan which in, in this day and age means one or two Republicans. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, Lindsey Graham won't because he's Lindsey Graham, but the other two or three Republicans who've uh, voted for her in the past, I think, will again. Uh, it's, just, it's just another chance, though, for them to show us who they are. Not that we need any more proof of this, but it's... it's um, I don't know. It's, I, it's, it's, I think what, what, what's... I, I, <laughs> And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think what we're both kind of getting at, it's just, it's so embarrassing for them because this one would be easy. This would be, an, this right. is a, this costs them nothing. She's immensely qualified right. and she doesn't change the balance of the court. It would cost exactly. them nothing to just be exactly. like, oh yeah, that's fine. Anyway, moving on. Let's talk about gas prices. Like, you know, whatever, like it, it, this is, this is, this is a layup for them. And even, even then, then they can't take the layup. They can't take yes for an answer. Um, 
because she's a woman, because she's black, because they have their their hangups, right? And because like the yeah. success of a black woman like threatens them in their little, you know, in their little brains. So like you've got Tucker Carlson um talking about I mean, just talking about test scores. It's it's just it's amazing when it would be so easy to just be like, okay, yeah, you got this one. Anyway, moving on. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and honestly, if, if I could remember my GRE scores, I'd be embarrassed. <laughs> I have no idea what my GRE scores are. It would be embarrassing. Um, I know we're running out of time, but I have a couple more questions. Is that okay? Sure, sure, sure. Because uh, I, I asked people to send in questions, and well, I got a bunch. Get, we didn't but, get to any of them. All right. Yeah, for the, for the sake of time, I, there's one in particular um, I wanted to ask because I just I, I think it's a great uh, way to start wrapping up. From Teresa. I believe Ellie said that it would not be possible in our present day to have a constitutional convention, but let's pretend that we could. In a perfect world, who from our public sphere would he assign as a delegate for the new constitution? And the reason, I, one of the reasons I like that question is because it's like hopeful and um, it kind of gets us out of the, the dire uh, straits we're in when like feels like nothing's going to be accomplished ever, but it also gives us something to work towards because I agree with you. We need to rewrite the constitution from the ground up or just give us the first and the 14th amendment, which is something else I wanted to talk to you about, but that's a much longer conversation. So what do you, what do you think about Teresa's question? Okay. So in the, in the perfect world where, where Republicans don't exist, uh, <laughs> um, well, obviously it's not just a delegate, right? You want the whole point right. is that, you know, to quote, Kermit the Frog and Muppets Take Manhattan, you want more dogs and cats and bears and chickens and things. Like you want you want as many diverse people as possible because nobody has a monopoly on on knowing what to do and nobody has a monopoly on rights and responsibilities, right? So you'd want to make sure, you know, the, whatever it was, you want to make sure there was at least 50% uh, uh, women, right? You, you just, that's what the country, that's what the world is at the very yeah. least, right? You so say you'd want to have 50% women. You'd want to have, have, you know, representative minority representation across as many groups as possible. You'd want some openly LGBTQ folks in there. You'd want, you want people whose rights are on the line or on the chopping block all the time to have a part, to have a participation in making those rights. There is no one person um, who could do it. I wouldn't want to do, I mean, like I could do it as a joke, but like you want to, I wouldn't, I'll put it like this, Mary. I would not vote for a constitution that I wrote myself because the, because the simple idea that only one person um, would be in charge of writing it um, is an anathema to the entire project that I'm trying to talk about. Um, sure. I mean, I have to assume that that wasn't, right, you know, right, that right. was maybe so then, something. So then just for, the, for, for funsies, though, um, <laughs> the, who would I – Who's got that like idea? Pick, pick a few people. You know, not just one, but like you know, a small group of people you think would be a really good starting point. Okay, well, I, I'll, I'll start this way. So I had Elena Kagan, Justice Elena Kagan, in college. She's one of my professors. Like, oh, uh, um, I, I put her in there. Um, I would put Elizabeth Warren in there, who was not one of my professors because I was scared of her class, and I didn't, need, <laughs> I didn't need that kind of heat. On my transcript there at the end, I was just trying to get to get out. Right, <laughs> that's great. So, so I definitely start with those two as the core, as as a great yeah. core. And then since I've just been talking about Katanji Brown Jackson so much and how great I think she is, um, I put her mm -hmm. in there too. So I'm starting with three women, and the other people can 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 add in their their heroes. But I think that with those three women, that would be a great core. Kagan's a little bit more rules based. 
um, mm-hmm. um, Jackson um, really has that sense of like how people live in this society and Warren for just that like you know what's not going to happen Adam Smith is not writing this constitution like that aspect I think that's a great core right <laughs> oh man I love that um, and I would because I'm less uh, forgiving I would say no white guys but <laughs> I, maybe I could be I, maybe I could change my mind you had but your chance white guys yeah <laughs> You did. You had your chance and you really blew it. Right. Like from A to Z, <laughs> you blew it. Um, Steve Kerr, Ellie, basketball, I, uh, Golden State Warriors basketball coach, Steve Kerr, or, or San Antonio Spurs coach, uh, Greg Popovich. Those are, those are my white guys. <laughs> I'm going to have to defer you because I don't know who either of those people is, <laughs> but I trust you. So that's cool with me too. I'm going to start this list. I'm going to, I'm going to keep track of this list. And every time I have somebody else on who knows what they're talking about, I'm going to, I'm going to ask them okay. because I think it could be, it's a good thought exercise. Um, two more really quick questions that I like to ask everybody because we're living, you may have noticed in dark time. Um, yeah, it's like, it's the, it's overwhelming. Um, almost always. So especially when you have kids. Um, so what now gives you hope and how do you hang on to it, considering everything? Uh, rum and no. <laughs> oh, I I'd say vodka, but okay. Rum's good. Um, oh, I th- this is going to be dark, but this is where I am this okay. week. Republicans are on the verge of getting everything they wanted, and sometimes that's the worst thing that can happen to a person, right? Um, so sometimes the worst thing yeah. that can happen is, is when you get everything you want. So I, so I guess a, a version of hope that I have is that as Republicans uh, uh, collect their victories, as they overturn abortion rights and they unleash guns on our subway systems and they overturn uh, public health and safety regulations and they get all these things that they wanted – Maybe more people will realize that living in a Republican dystopian theocracy is bad and will rise up and do something about it, right? Because I think that, that y- y- you try to explain to people what they're trying – what Republicans are trying to do and there's a part of them that like doesn't believe you. Like that just right. doesn't believe they're going to go as far as they're going to go. But when they're putting, you know, uh, uh, kidnapping trans kids from their families, when they are jailing um, parents who get who get their daughter's birth control pills, when all that's happening, maybe people will realize that we weren't being hysterical all along, and we'll do something to stop them. Is that, does that count as hope? Yeah. Um, it's gonna, it's um, definitely a, 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 it might get darker before it gets lighter, but I do think it'll yeah. get lighter because I do think that ultimately, you know, they're they're destined to lose. Ultimately, people don't want to live under their under a, 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 the, a theocratic uh, dystopia, and so I do think that people will eventually figure that out. Well, I, you know, we have a test case. I think Texas is almost entirely on its way. Maybe not completely, but it's it's getting there. I mean, women are now second-class citizens mm-hmm. or, you know, people who want to decide whether or not to be pregnant. Um, they have, you know, there's this new uh, anti-trans uh, thing where, where it's also a vigilante system, as it is with the anti-abortion situation. And their new um, voting rights laws are, I mean, they're so egregious that the Department of Justice is looking into them. And I think for a long time now, it, Texas is that place. Anybody at any time at all, at all times can have whatever kind of gun they want 
with as big a magazine as they want. So I, I think Texas is pretty close. So we'll have to see how the next elections down there go because um, that could be an indicator. Or we'll see perhaps. if people start fleeing. Like at, right? at, at, some, at some point you got to move out, right? Like I'm kind of waiting for the, and we haven't really seen this yet. I'm really waiting for, for the business community to also like start being like, we're not going to, we're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to have our workers go here anymore. Um, we're not there yet, but yeah. you know, we'll, no. we'll see if we get there. All right. Well, I, I hope you're right. Um, it's hard to have faith in American corporations. Uh, I mean, you, you know, you're in trouble when that's what you're hoping for, right? Maybe <laughs> you know Coca-Cola will I mean, like that's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Coke, Starbucks and McDonald's won't leave Russia for God's sake. So right? Disney won't do anything in Florida. So, but I guess, you know, corporations are people too. So they're made up of people. What was the second question? You said you had two to close. Just how, how do you hang on to hope in the, in this day and age? Oh, the hanging on to it is a different, is different. You know, I've got, I've got, I've got to hang on to it because I've got two kids, right? I've got a nine-year-old and a six-year-old. I've got to hope that their, their lives will be um, better than they look right now. Although I will say, and I've talked about this before, but like, you know, I like one of my, one of the, 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 the problems in my education, one of the, my self-perceived problems in my education is that I, I never, I never had any kind of international skills, right? Like I need Mm -hmm. to be like north of the Mason-Dixon line east of the Hudson, south of Montreal, like that, there I'm okay. And once I go mm-hmm. beyond there, I'm a little bit out of my element, right? I know I don't know how to yeah. speak another language um, like most um, intelligent people know how to do, right? So like all these things, I really don't want my kids to be like that because I, right. I really want my kids to have the ability, the option, you know, to get out of here if that's what becomes... Yeah, I'm trying to get my daughter a Scottish passport. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. Just in case, because <laughs> totally. you never know. Like, you know, the, you know, maybe it's. Yeah, I would love for them to have that ability, that that uh, cultural flexibility that maybe I myself yeah. don't have. Um, so, so, but, but fundamentally, yeah, I have to, I have to keep some hope because I got, I got them to to care about and to worry about. Right, and they do control the iPads in your house. Yeah, absolutely. So, right. <laughs> Ellie Mistal, this has been such a such a pleasure. I've been wanting to meet you for a long time, and I'm glad your book gave me an excuse. It's it's again, allow me to retort. Can you see that? A black guy's guide to the Constitution. Seriously, it's it's necessary. It is a corrective to almost all of the history white people have been quote unquote taught. Um, which is why you're seeing the reactions you're seeing (laughs) from white people to a lot of this book. On Twitter, somebody told me that we were race baiting because we didn't, we don't think the constitution is good. I'm like, that's an interesting take. Um, But anyway, the book is fantastic. Please read it and read uh, Ellie's stuff in The Nation. And obviously he's a contributor on MSNBC who really needs to be paid. Um, Ellie, thank you so much. I really appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for having me, Mary. Okay, now we come to the point in the show where I get to answer your questions. I really like hearing from you. So if you have a question for me, please send an email to mary at politicon.com and I will try to get to all of the questions you send me in the next show. Uh, so first up, we have a question from... Tim in Barcelona, Spain. Tim asks, have you ever known a person as psychologically troubled as Donald? 
Uh, and has, have they ever had a moment when they say, that's it, I can't do this anymore, I'm exhausted, I'm full of shit, and I'm so sorry for everything? Uh, is a Damascene conversion theoretically impossible for someone as, as, well, as unwell as he is? Well, first of all, I worked on the admissions ward of a state psychiatric hospital, so I've definitely met people who are more psychologically disordered than Donald is. Um, that having been said, um, he's more dangerous, obviously, because he's been given uh, ridiculous amounts of power that somebody like him never should have had. Uh, and as, as for his ever coming to some realization that uh, his entire existence is a lie, uh, this will never happen because he's a malignant narcissist and, and narcissists um, never, uh, narcissists at that level, uh, never come to any real understanding of who they are because it would completely shatter uh, their illusions. And that is much of what Donald spends his psychic energy defending against, actually. <clears throat> Uh, from Julie in Burlingame, California. Do you think it's possible to enact laws to prevent dangerous people from holding any public office without it being framed by the right wing as discriminatory or stigmatizing mental illness? I, I don't think laws can be enacted, actually. Um, I, I think... Basically, under the Constitution, anybody who wants to run for office can run for office. So the only way to prevent a disaster uh, like Donald is for the parties to come up with vetting processes. Uh, for example, so at any time along the way, the Republican Party could have torpedoed Donald's nomination simply by requiring that all candidates release their tax returns or... Um, you know, a full medical or psychiatric workup. I think both parties should do some version of that. I think uh, tax returns should be a requirement, as should a full battery of psychological and psychiatric tests and a full medical workup by a nonpartisan committee of doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists, neurologists. Um, I, I think... Uh, Candidates for president or for the nomination should be able to demonstrate that they've actually read the Constitution. However, since it's up to the parties, I don't think that would ever happen on the Republican side. So unfortunately, uh, we're going to be stuck with somebody like Donald again, potentially. Okay, so here's a question from Logan in Texas who asks, who are your go-tos for reliable information about Ukraine and uh, the Russian aggression against Ukraine. There are a few, actually, but um, just generally speaking, uh, I will listen to anything Fiona Hill has to say on the subject. Um, Alexander Vindman, Michael McFall, um, they all have immense amounts of experience, um, have lived over there, speak the language, or languages, as the case may be. Um, so, you know, especially since there's so much, um, you know, there, it's so awful and, and we all want to do something. And there's other than donating, which is a great thing to do, don't get me wrong. But, you know, we can't 
really make a difference in the conflict. So there's this real uh, anxiety that we're not doing enough, that we should be doing more militarily. And I completely understand that. But, uh, you know, those three people I mentioned, and and others as well, um, really understand NATO's position. They understand what NATO has been dealing with for the last four decades. Um, you know, they grew up during the Cold War, as did I. And, um, you know, especially during the the very serious nuclear tensions that existed in the 80s. Um, so when the subject of, say, a no-fly zone comes up, or establishing a no-fly zone, which is really a euphemism for let's shoot Russian planes out of the sky zone, right? Um, I'm going to listen to what they say. And if they think it's not a good idea and that we should be doing more in terms of giving Ukraine money and weaponry, um, I will absolutely defer to them because I don't know anything about it. All of my information about this I try to get from experts, uh, you know, so that my opinion at least is informed. So I would definitely listen to Fiona Hill, Alex Vimin, Michael McFall. I mean, there are many others, but those are have been uh, my three go-tos. So, Okay, for the last question, Kathy in New York asks, if World War III breaks out, who would you choose to be in a bunker with? Uh, well, the first person I choose to be in a bunker with is my daughter. And then I would choose Jen Tao, Katie Fang, E. Jean Carroll, Marissa Rothkoff, and Joyce Vance, which is really very convenient because starting this Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern time, this show is going live on the Politicon channel at YouTube. And those five are my first guests because my daughter's in the middle of midterm, so she can't join us. Anyway, please come join us at 7 o'clock this Thursday on YouTube, the Politicon YouTube channel. And like I said, it's going to be live. As usual, if you have any questions, please send them to me at mary at and I'll get to as many of them as I can. I love hearing from you guys, so definitely uh, send me an email with your questions. And thank you for joining me for our last recorded show. Uh, and I will see you all live this coming Thursday, March 10th at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much to Ellie Mistal for being such a great guest. And I will see you in a couple of days. Stay safe. Stay safe.